0: Welcome to Soil to Soil, a podcast connecting the dots in the life cycle of clothing and material culture, brought to you by Fiber Shed. Each episode offers a look at how and why our community is working to cultivate fiber and dye systems that build soil and protect the health of our biosphere. In this episode, we're taking a look at what it means to cultivate and work within a fiber shed. Let me tell you, let me tell you, let me tell you, I I'm Jess Daniels, and I'm joined by three organizers from the Southeastern New England Fibershed, which is a member of our global Fibershed affiliate network. When we talk about a Fibershed, I find it useful to imagine that, you know, there's a capital F Fibershed, which is the name and identity of our organization, and that there's also a lowercase f Fibershed as a term and a kind of open source word to describe a strategic geography. And a place where natural textile resources are being grown, processed, sewn, and worn, which is many places. And that's not at all to say that everyone needs to use the word fiber shed to describe their place or their project, but we have increasingly found that many communities find alignment and support through adopting and adapting this term and vision. The Fibershed affiliate program has grown from that emergence and is a network of truly inspiring on-the-ground community efforts that cross-pollinate through our program's connectivity. So when you're done listening to this episode, I'd invite you to check out the Fibershed affiliate directory on Fibershed.org, where you can see a map and click-through profile pages to learn more about the wide range of members of this community. And in this episode, I'm talking with three people who are doing some amazing things in their strategic geography of the Southeastern New England shed. Amy DuFault, a sustainable fashion writer, consultant, and activist, has worked in this space for over a decade. And Karen Schwalbe, who is the Executive Director of the Southeastern Massachusetts Agricultural Partnership, or CMAP, has been working in ecological restoration and local agriculture. And Sarah Kelly is the Senior Program Officer at Island Foundation, and she has a background in both textile history and local agriculture and environmental conservation. Sarah, Karen, and Amy share how and why they joined together to develop a Fibershed affiliate within and for their community. They talk about getting to know the people, places, and processes of their regional fiber system, and how they have gotten started with specific projects like working with a small cohort of alpaca farmers to support carbon farming practices and education. We chat about how a fiber shed can be a way to understand both the textile history of a place and provide a way to envision a soil-to-soil economy for the future of one's community. It's so great to have you all on the podcast today. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me in this conversation. As co-organizers of the Southeastern New England Fibershed, you're each bringing such a unique set of skills and connections. In your own words, what is a fiber shed and how does that relate to your work and your experience in your field?
1: A fiber shed to me is, uh, is very similar to a food shed. It's a place where in, in our fiber shed, we're connecting farmers to finish product and along the way we're helping to educate and have events that get people to feel a sense of community and um and I guess I also feel like if you're part of a fiber shed that you're acting as a switchboard operator connecting everybody from other fiber sheds or within your fiber shed so it it does many it it has many roles but it's it's really a place of connection.
0: And your experience, Amy, you're coming from the sustainable fashion world and and communications. Um, Do you want to say any more about that and how that relates to getting going in a fiber shed?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, having been in the sustainable fashion world for the past 13 years, there's always been this sort of missing piece that is where fiber comes from. And I think farmers have been greatly uh, overlooked. So what, how I love working with Fibershed with my, that kind of my background is that I get to really start at the beginning, which I don't think you can call anything sustainable if you don't have it um, the soil or the people are taken care of at the beginning. So for me, it becomes a real opportunity to see what happens at the very beginning of the supply chain. And that's really
0: exciting. And you mentioned in your first part about a food shed. And I know Karen, your background comes from Food Systems, do you want to share a little bit more about your experience and how that relates to a fiber shed?
2: Yeah, absolutely. um the similarities are so strong, um and I think the only difference is the timing of where people at are at and their awareness of them um, There's the same kind of framing for fiber and for food. We look at, you know, what the connections are in our region. We're a little bit geographically limited by county, but there's also just natural areas where the farmers all interact that extend around those kind of artificial geographic boundaries. But um, the farmers that raise fiber and the farmers that raise food, you know, have a lot of similar, um, backgrounds, needs, um, pressures, loves that all help um, kind of bind them together in a fiber shed. So yeah, I think I'll stop there.
0: And I think that piece about the the timing of people's awareness is a great connector to Sarah's works. I know your background looking at environmental conservation at a community level. Um, How did you come to learn about a fiber shed and what does that mean to you?
3: Sure. Thanks, Jess. Um, And I'm sure I'll echo a lot of what Amy and Karen said. Um, But I think two main things are I have really like a lifelong interest in textiles and fiber more from the kind of material economy side and really asking where is this from and who made this. And I also, um, like Karen, have spent a lot of time focusing on the food movement and working on the nonprofit and now on the foundation side of the food movement. And I think in that role, and especially in this, my current role at a foundation, I've had the chance to see how the whole nonprofit and foundation movement has really accelerated awareness around food in our country, um, where it's from and who's involved in growing it, what are the environmental and toxics and the other implications of that system and I just started feeling really strongly that we should be asking and really bringing forward those same questions around fiber. So connecting with Amy and Karen around this work, it just felt like the time was really right to bring forward that same set of questions um, and, and be asking ourselves and people that we're working with to examine that. So when, you know, to your original question, what does a fiber shed mean to me is a lot around that awareness and recreating and resurfacing that awareness of where the fibers and textiles that surround us every day are coming from. Um,
0: I'd love to hear how you define the strategic geography of the southeastern New England fiber shed and I know there were conversations and a lot of community input that led into that development. Sarah would you like to continue on that on how your thinking came around to it?
3: You know, as you know, our first step in this work was, uh, as we began working together and trying to understand the assets in our community, really taking like an asset-based approach to this work, was to pull together the Southeastern Massachusetts Fiber and Textile Roundtable in 2017. And to some extent, I think our sense of the geography has been shaped by the people who came uh, to that meeting, and it involved it included a lot of people from Rhode Island, and we held it in the city of New Bedford at the Joseph Abud um, Suit Company, which is an example of the kind of incredible infrastructure we still have in the region. So when we began working with you and with Fibershed and tried to define our region, I think we were anchored by those urban areas where we still have this manufacturing infrastructure. and took inspiration from other fiber shed affiliates that have defined a 100 or 200 mile radius to think about that. And that certainly intersects with a lot of other fiber sheds. And so I think it's been important to us to see this not as like a hard edge, but as a place where we're focusing on our particular region, but really trying to cross-pollinate.
0: Anything, uh, Amy or Karen, that you'd like to add to that around the geography and the, the sense of place in the Southeastern New England fiber shed?
1: What's been interesting, I think, ongoing for for me with this is, and, and Sarah and Karen knew a lot more about farming in our area. Is I didn't realize how much there was um, of fiber farming in our area when I thought about our our you know gr our, our our area our fiber shed. I really was thinking about those old old factories and old mills in New Bedford and Fall River and Lowell and Lawrence and uh, Providence. But um, it's been so interesting to learn more about our fiber shed in relation to all the the farmers that are part of it, too. And I'm going into areas that Karen and Sarah have been in for years that I'm like, I've never even been into this area, Massachusetts, and it's so beautiful and filled with, you know, farming history.
2: I think for me, to the you know we have these vi- or these formerly vibrant um, fiber and textile centers in Fall River, New Bedford, Providence, Plymouth, uh, and then we have the farmers, but we don't have that connection in between. So there's no way to bring the actual product that we produce in southeastern Massachusetts to a place where it can actually be used in the region. So, you know, redefining that, revamping it, reinvigorating it have all been part of the the work that we want our fiber shed to be involved in.
0: It's so inspiring. I mean, as I've been following along with everything you've been up to, so many projects and activities, including forming an online producer and supply chain directory, which lists a lot of those historic infrastructure sites and, you know, the remnants of that textile processing you know, facilities and opportunities, as well as raw fiber producers. And you've been doing that through blog posts, interviewing farmers and mills, and you've had in-person events. Uh, I've seen some glimpses of a local wool pool through a high school. And um, so I'd love to hear more about how you've been getting to know your regional fiber systems. And um, I mean, this just a lot to cover all at once. So was there one piece that um, led into the next, or are you just dividing and conquering?
2: I would think a little more of the dividing and conquering, at least from my perspective, because my work is primarily with farms and farmers. So Amy's been so awesome to be able to pull together the supply chain connections, and I am, you know, CMAP, and my work has been to kind of bring the farmers into that aspect of it, and then you know, once Amy meets a farmer, the stories that she can bring out about what, they're, what they do has been amazing. So, um, you know, that particular aspect of the activity um, and the projects that we do have been pretty neat.
0: And how would you say you're building some of these connections? Amy, you mentioned getting out into the field and kind of new places that you might be discovering geographically and um, how, what are some of the the -the on-the-ground activities, what does that look like to build out this network?
2: Some of the work that CMAP does is directly working with farmers. So we've held some workshops like the um, uh, sheep shearing, um, or the, yeah, we did a sheep 101 at one of our farms, and we've had somebody come in to teach skirting to farmers. So we bring people in through our farm, you know, our CMAP network Um, and then make them aware of the fiber shed work that's going on and they stay kind of involved in the project. Um, And then we also have the resource of the roundtable that we did in 2017 and some surveying that CMAP has done. Um, So that's kind of that particular part of it. Um, And then that has been rolled into, you know, the, the farmers that are in the CMAP kind of realm are now part of the online producer directory, so they have a lot bigger exposure from the work that
1: Fibershed has been able to do than CMAP's regional work. Kind of building off of what Karen's saying, you know, I was able to take a lot of her, the farmers from the CMAP site, and add them onto our site. I think you know, ten just last month. Um, so, so those farmers get on our our directory, but then. Through social media, I have a lot of people that are reaching out, messaging, saying, "I'd like to be on it. What do I need to do?" I have a friend, or you know, what's been fun too is having other fiber sheds reach out and say, "You know, I have a friend who has a farm, and your I think in your fiber shed, check them out." And so it just becomes this really awesome network of again, kind of joining forces, finding out about people who are doing big things already or want to grow what they're doing and you know having a place like you know we use Instagram and Facebook but being able to support each other Um, you know I'll support other fiber sheds they'll totally support us if we ask and and getting to know our area by people just by just you know commenting or participating on you know online has been amazing and then the events that we have had through cmap has been you know bringing in more people too who want to know more about our fiber shed so it's just there's so many moving pieces to the puzzle and i think you know just conversations we have with our colleagues too who who we share what we're doing with and they want to know how can they be part so yeah it's like a, it's a real group effort
0: well it seems to be working so strongly. Um, it's been exciting to follow as you have been building that farmer network that you know they're then sort of launching into your first carbon farming education cohort with alpaca farmers in your community. Can you share more about how that project came to be and how you've been organizing it?
3: Um, I think that really you Jess and Fibershed um, were a big part of the spark of that project with the grants program and we do have a lot of alpaca farmers in our region and it's a kind of fiber farming that's maybe a little less common in some other regions of the country and we also have an incredible partner and resource in the form of the new england alpaca fiber pool run by chris and shelley riley who also have animals of their own and a farm of their own and they are um, bringing in fiber from alpaca farms all around the country and processing that into value-added goods that they then um, sell back to to the participants in the pool. So we had been talking about some ideas around uh, carbon farming and soil carbon sequestration, and we had a conversation, I think, that Amy initially connected with Chris Riley, and he was really enthusiastic about this idea. Learning more about how um, alpaca farming operations could bring in principles of soil carbon sequestration, regenerative agriculture, and carbon farming. And I think we knew that with Chris, we would have that critical sort of um, hub partner. So the microgrant opportunity um, allowed us to sort of turn that into a project and secure some funds to pay for some of the costs involved in setting up the cohort. And then working with Chris, he reached out to a number of his farming contacts, you know, many of whom are involved in team up already. there was a lot of interest and quick response from the six or seven growers who who have been participating. So it it felt like a project that came together in a very, like, this is the time, like right now, this is the time when this is meant to gel um, serendipitous kind of way.
0: Exciting. And so what does that look like as it started to gel? um, And it sounds like you had connections through the alpaca fiber pool, as well as through CMAP. Um, How did you start to bring that carbon farming education and resources to the participants
2: so how did we get them together i mean i think chris has been uh chris riley was our vetting agent he got the people to the table um and then you know going through the whole process of for you know doing the soil testing kind of helped um, frame what we were doing. We visited each farm to do the soil sampling um, and use the citizen soil sampling protocol. So we were hopefully able to get some good data from that on um, you know, just using the methods that uh, Fibershed had put together. Then got them to the table with, um, you know, finding the right source expert and kind of being able to explain it has been a bit of trial and error for us. Uh, we have local resources that do work in a strictly agricultural sense, but don't quite have the climate um, background. And then we have, you know, some people who are, you know, scientists that we actually haven't really brought to the table yet, but have helped with the soil sampling. So um, getting the information to the farmers in a way that makes sense to them has been, um, you know, A good part of our work as well, making something that's understandable, which Amy's just amazing at, um, and keeping it fun. Um, And so we work through a series of, you know, four workshops with specific goals. Um, Part of our goal is to get farmers not just to understand what a carbon farm plan is, but to actually. apply for some funding to help them implement the decisions, you know, the, the types of uh, projects that they wanted to do. So that's kind of where we're at right now with a grant um, deadline coming up next week and farmers that are definitely interested in moving through this.
0: What are some examples of the projects or practices that the farmers in your community are looking to do? I just created a
1: spreadsheet, <laughs> yeah, for um, what the farmers have proposed, what their practices will be and you know the number one practice is composting, and um another is no till and I know I don't have the spreadsheet in front of me i mean, but they they also are um planting hedge hedgerows and I'm trying to think of some other pieces of the puzzle that they said they were they were going to be doing, but
3: I can add like pasture management and rotational grazing practices to to the list
1: right yeah I have nutrient management and yeah that seems like a kind of a a common kind of, yeah fencing is has been a very popular practice as well so so we're right now trying to keep track of what the farmers have proposed what they're going to do and like um, Karen was just saying some of the grants that are available uh, we have at least one farmer or two farmers actually who have uh, who are applying for grants and have asked us for help so we're giving them feedback so they can have some you know have their grants come in and be effective but that was another really interesting part was how daunting it seemed for them to apply for grants to see as as one of our farmers said a lot of white space that they had to fill in and it's as people you know people who aren't used to filling out grant forms It was a bit overwhelming so you know being able to provide them support has been uh, really valuable too.
0: I wanted to touch on something that Karen mentioned a little bit too around how you're making the carbon farming education understandable and I think that was something you had shared with me uh, during this project was that uh, the carbon farming as an idea as a concept was a little intimidating to some of the farmers to get started Um, So can you say more about what you've experienced in the communication side and the kind of resource development side, working directly with the producers?
1: Well, it was, it was interesting. We had um, Fibershed skiped in for one of our, our calls to really talk about, you know, what carbon farming, climate beneficial, and words like, you know, or terms like global warming, you know, (laughs) there's all these, these things, these terms being used. And, I always like to sit back and look at people's facial expressions and body language, and it was really clear to me that people were really uncomfortable with what was being said, and they didn't understand it, and so we actually lost connection with Fibershed, and we were able to to, to ask the farmers, you know, do you, do you understand what we're talking about, and they, they sort of really didn't understand what we were talking about, but after some discussion, it was, we you know, we all realized we had something in common, which was we wanted to have healthy soil. And we wanted it for a, maybe a different reason to start than they did. They just wanted to, um, you know, to have healthy soil. But I think when they first started, it was really, they were interested in the marketing piece of it too. That was interesting to them. But by the second or third meetup, we had, it, you know, we had farmers talking like, like you know like fibershed, they were talking about people and planet and carbon farming, and why why haven't we been doing this you know um why weren't we doing this thirty years ago? you know, but what's interesting to me, even farmers I've been talking with that aren't part of our alpaca cohort um, there's this real there's this real kind of um battle against talking in that way versus just doing what's always been done and what the you know the so the challenge is like yeah there's this really great way that you can take care of soil and right now we're calling it you know that we're, we're, we're talking about sequestering carbon and but for those people that just aren't used aren't used to it or it's almost like uh what's the word I'm, i guess it's it's very like hipster or something weird I, I what's the word i'm looking for it's It's too new, the the terms being used. And so it's a real turnoff to farmers. And I mean, that's just my, that's the conversation, the conversations that I've been having, I feel like so fascinating. And I I remember actually one time with Karen, when we were, she was showing a documentary on dairy farming, New England dairy farmers, and the same type of um, old versus new farming came into play again, and it was the as they were the you know third generation dairy farmers were were talking about the boutique quote unquote boutique farmers and how it wasn't a real you can correct me on this Karen too but it wasn't it wasn't real a real type of farming but because they were because they had to have a side job, but at the same time the dairy farmers were losing money and not even having any fun doing it, so <laughs> it's this it's just you know how do you how do you get farmers to start looking at like don't be afraid of the terms being used don't be afraid of the way you can communicate out don't be afraid that you can break the system up a little bit and do things differently than your grandfather did or you know there's just this sort of cautiousness I guess about what we're all talking about when we talk about carbon farming and climate beneficial that you know you just have to ask people why do you why do you feel like like what is it about these terms that, that make you feel uncomfortable? And that's, that's been interesting to find out.
2: I think it's also, you know, the alpaca farmers we worked with came to alpaca farming from the love of the animal and from the love of the fiber. And they did not necessarily have a background in farming. So a lot of the, even the approach from ag extension people, NRCS, were not necessarily familiar to them. So, you know, it took a couple of different ways of approaching it and a little time to think about it and ask questions and come back until it really started to sink in how these pieces fit into what they already knew. So it was like opening up a whole new aspect of what farming means, you know, and working with that soil That they're grazing, and you know the the science and the you know the understanding behind that.
0: Do you see parallels with that? Um, You know, talking about folks who come into this work through the fiber side, uh, is that different than some of your experience working in the food system, or do you you know you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of crossover between how CMAP has been working with farmers? Um, there's
2: definitely crossover. I think for the a lot of the fiber farmers coming from where they've come from, veggie farmers kind of understand really quickly their relationship to the soil because they're directly on the soil and there's an immediate annual response. You don't have good soil, you see it in your crop immediately. When you're on grazing land and then you're supplementing um, you know, with hay and grain, that connection isn't as obvious in your animal's um, and it takes a little while for the soils to, um, you know, to show that they're having an issue, so I think when we did the soil test, we found a lot of the farms needed calcium, um, and to the point where, you know, if they had been testing more regularly, they would have been adding calcium more regularly, and that just helps make the whole system, you know, calcium kind of the driver to keep this, you know, the lime and Um, calcium in the form of lime because of pH, I should say, all the way through, um, that it, um, you know, it was, you know, it's not as obvious a connection with the fiber farmers um, as it is with the vegetable farmers. Uh, Some of the other things, the marketing and the you know, the website design, the financial stuff, all farmers come at that from different aspects, you know, and different backgrounds, but I didn't see any difference with the fiber farmers so much. Some of them are really good business people, obviously, you know, better than the vegetable farmers I have worked with, um, but the kind of understanding of the importance of soil and pasture and grazing to their farms was just not as well-developed. As the connection, the soil connection with vegetable farmers.
0: Mm. That's such an interesting point. I hadn't thought about it in exactly those terms of really being on the level with you know sowing seeds in the soil and harvesting and seeing those results immediately. Um, that's certainly something that it seems like some fiber farmers might be attuned to. You know, the health of their animal in the fiber quality and looking at a holistic way to improve forage quality and that sort of thing. But it can be a little bit removed. And I
2: think a higher proportion of brought in feed than pasture for some of these farms. So it's not as obvious that, you know, they could be improving their pasture to cut down on other feed sources. You know, because of the size of our farms, in many cases here, that's just what it's done food, you know, additional, you know, supplementation for food is brought in.
0: Do you find any themes or any, are you seeing any kind of repeat patterns around um, asset, assets and facets of the fiber shed that are bringing people to the table and and attracting them to your work?
1: Because of Karen, those CMAP farmers, I've been reaching out because I'm adding people to our directory and then when they they realize you know what we're doing and some of the um, upcoming events we're going to have you know they're interested in, in coming to the events but now there's talk about them actually having events too at their own farms which is great so one of the things that I loved about our alpaca cohort was that we had um you know we had such a great group of people that would sit around the table once a month and you know we had our just this real sense of community and I know that they were upset that this was going to be over and that they couldn't have that time once a month that they could get together with everyone I think being a farmer can be a very lonely occupation and So being able to provide that space for them to gather was, I think, really uh, of great value to them. And then in terms of social media and the blog posts, I mean, it's been great to just be able to have those farmers showcased in a really exciting way. They've never seen themselves in that way. So that also is really building their sense of worth, I think, too, that they see themselves as is good enough for an article or good enough for a post on social media and incredible amounts of sharing happening with the farmers with their friends and um, you know it's just it's been really beautiful to see.
0: Yeah.
3: And just this is Sarah, I would just add a, a couple reflections on that. I think um you had you know you had asked like seeing fiber sheds as a place for people who hadn't really like necessarily found a place for their work previously or had maybe felt that some of the traditional agricultural support services weren't geared to them. I think we've absolutely seen that. I I, we've heard the farmers in the alpaca cohort express along the lines of, yay, you know, this is just for fiber farmers. Like we don't have to kind of wedge ourselves in anymore and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, remember us. I think that has, as Amy just said, really had value for them. And just more broadly you know to some of your earlier questions about um interest and the kinds of projects that are coming in and what amy's seen with uh through the social media channels is is really a huge amount of interest from people who are engaging fibers in all different ways we've certainly had a lot of interest around hemp production in our region as many regions have and have been trying to work you know across regions with um well, we have plenty of sheep farmers in our region as well that we're trying to engage with, and then the, that's been a real focus in other fiber sheds where we're trying to um, work in partnership and pick up on that topic. I think, as you maybe alluded to at the beginning, um, it is it's a challenge to sort of understand like which projects can we devote our energy and attention to, and. Again, I think we we look to Amy and rely on Amy for her incredible ability to sort of manage everything that's coming in and and identify the the real bright spots or the places that we could hopefully engage and fill that role as a hub. Um, So it's been super exciting just to have the sense that by creating the affiliate and and holding this container and creating this sort of regional um, center, so much work is is emerging and that we're having a chance to connect with it, Um, figuring out how we channel our, our energy and into which projects that are going to really help us raise that whole dialogue in the region is, is an ongoing conversation, a good problem to have, uh, for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you want to say more about, do you, if you have a few minutes, do you want to share more about your hemp research? I think people will be really interested to know what you're doing and how you're getting started. It's kind of with the, the theme of uh, resurgence and uh, a new look at a historic crop and historic aspect of your fiber shed.
2: It's a historic aspect of the fiber shed, and it's got some really um, interesting tie-ins. Um, you know, the, all of the all of the hopes and dreams and pocketbooks are attached to CBD production right now, but the FDA is going to limit that at some point. Um, so there, that's kind of like one part of hemp that, you know, well, everyone's looking at CBD, but there's all this possibility for fiber, not just a high quality fiber for, um, you know, for textiles, but also in hempcrete in, you know, in all kinds of other ways to, you know, that can get a renewable fiber source, uh, yeah, fiber source, literally. Um, And this you know part of it is also this um ma- magic hand waving that a lot of people talk about hemp well yeah you know you can get the oil and you can get the seeds and you can get the fiber not and not really realizing they're all very different production techniques so i realized we needed to do some education around what hemp really was and how to help p- focus people both from you know all right if you're going to grow it for cbd this is what you're looking at but then if you're going to grow it for textiles you know, this is what you do. And there was this little offhand conversation that I had, oh my goodness, with a, a local farmer who also had, with Ron Smolowitz, actually, um, Amy, <laughs> um, who's like got his fingers in every pot, a local farmer who also does work with the Kuna Mesut Farm Foundation in Fisheries. And he said the biggest contributor to marine microplastics is fishing gear and all of these plastic yeah. lines that they're running over the gunnels of the boat sides yeah. of the boat and licking off these tiny pieces of plastic and you know all of that line used to be made out of hemp and it just started you know kind of turning in all these different ways back in on itself um and then you know to be able to land it in the you know the context of the fiber shed just made so much sense um so we're yeah. with NOFA and or, well not indirectly with NOFA but with Bill Braun who is a local farmer who does the Freed Seed Federation, and he's looking at open source um, land-race seeds, seeds that are appropriate for the region that they grow in and developing the best seeds of each year's crop back into a sub-variety that works well in a region. And so we thought that hemp would be a great trial crop to for them to do because, There's not, you know, there's a few known fiber varieties, but we have no history of how that works in New England. They've just been gone so long. There's no residual hemp seed appropriate to the region. And a lot of the seed sources are being snapped up by multinational corporations, and they are licensing them and controlling them. So we want to be able to develop something appropriate for our region that's available to our farmers.
0: Wow. And so are you guys doing a trial right now? I have this image in my mind, I think I saw an Instagram of you walking out in a field that we going to yeah. be a trial. So
2: yeah. beautiful. And we, Bill. And, um, and so you, yeah, you can tell that part of the story because <laughs> you know it better than I do.
1: Oh, uh, we're, we, yeah, we, there's just this really beautiful, mind-blowingly beautiful mm-hmm. farm in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, and so it's this. I don't know what the actual size of the plot is because I'm really bad with you know. It, it's a large plot, but not too big. And um, I know Karen. We've we've had a couple different pieces to the puzzle, and we're trying to put it all together. And what I'm I, I'm trying to do, and now communicating with everyone is all sit down and to see how is this project. Collaboration, or uh, how do I communicate out about it? And so that's kind of where we're at, Jess, with, with trying to figure out the actual kind of the the plot itself. Because, like, like uh Karen saying, you know, this guy Bill Braun. I know he's applied for the growing license, right, Karen? I know you yeah. guys had like a walkthrough, yeah. And then Char- this woman Charlotte from. UMass Dartmouth, but it's not a UMass Dartmouth project. She uh, is getting a processors or applying for a processors license. So it's just you know we're just trying to get everybody in the same room to see yeah. like what are the pieces of the puzzle how, and how do we yeah how do we all support each other?
2: So CMAP's kind of funded to do help him with the processor license and maybe help him connect with a seed source. Um, And then from there, you know, Charlotte kind of added on her processor piece and we'll see how that goes. And Charlotte had uh, actually a really good connection with the landowner down in this Mm -hmm. beautiful spot in South Dartmouth called Barney's Joy, so.
0: Yeah, well, it seems like that's really ties to, back to the round table with, which seemed so well designed to capture uh, lots of different intersections through your hub. Um, could you share more about, I mean, it seems like it's such a consciously designed event. I did have the wonderful opportunity and privilege to attend. Um, and you had yeah, folks from the infrastructure side and agriculture and even financing and community development. Um, can you say more about how you designed that event and identified those stakeholders in the community?
2: Sarah was actually, and Sarah and Amy too, really looked at that whole picture you know, of what we needed to do as you know, to, to fully flesh out the picture of what a local fiber shed looked like.
3: From the very beginning, and this comes out of our three-way partnership, you know, from my being able to talk with Amy early and her background um, working with brands and larger companies, that from the very beginning we've had the goal that our fiber shed would focus on work that had the potential to go to scale, um, you know, thinking about at least piloting things that could potentially connect with apparel brands or larger companies differentiating that maybe from more of like a handicraft or an artisan scale approach and so I think we designed the event hopefully and and thanks for the kind words and for being there, Jess, with this particular goal from the very beginning to talk with people who are all along the supply chain from the farmers all the way through designers, brands, um, processors, and try to identify the assets that we did have in our region, as well as gaps. Um, We certainly heard a really, really clear call coming out of the roundtable for a regional clearinghouse of information on what we have in the region. And our affiliate site and all the work that Amy has done around the producer directory is is in direct response to that. Um, I know I still feel like we probably could Work for years on the feedback that we got from the roundtable participants about all the opportunities and challenges and, and trying to tackle that long-term work of rebuilding and revitalizing our infrastructure and our supply chain. Um, but we certainly, I think, got to hear from a really wide range of perspectives at that first event.
0: On the infrastructure side, we've been talking about your outreach with the agriculture community. And I'd love to hear more about um, the New England as a, a textile center and what it's like in your fiber shed to focus on that kind of rebuilding and investigating. Um, do you see opportunities to build or to really support supply chains at scale? Amy, do you want to share on on some of the infrastructure pieces you've been discovering?
1: You know, we've, we try to balance everything with kind of being out on farms and then actually going into mills because there are so many mills and, you you know, you can see that as part of our producer directory. But, um, you know, one of the exciting, uh, something exciting that's happened over the past, I guess, six months was like Draper Knitting, which is a part of our fiber shed and it's been around since, oh my God. I mean, just three generations of family that the Drapers that have owned this knitting mill and uh, just a great history in the area. And, one of the things we asked was would you ever consider working with small designers or maybe having um you know being able to have some u.s wool or regional wool that we could then offer out to our you know to designers or brands in our in our area or beyond and they just launched a small run of wool yardage but it's not from our fiber shed but it's u.s based wool but if we were to get enough wool, you know, from say a wool pool, or just kind of consistently having, you know, enough people participating that they would work with us on that. So they're doing so much right now for the military and, you know, Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball. Yeah. I mean, there's what they started out with is something they'd like to kind of look back to and, and embrace again, but they're they're not able to, to do that. But they're just starting to do that. But, you know, we, you know, I just had another person that just reached out and asked, could we make 600 sweaters from our, our area? And it's not something we can do yet, but that started a conversation within our fiber shed too. What would that look like if we were to do that? Or how could we partner with other fiber sheds to actually be able to fulfill that type of an order, and then the sort of ethical question, which is, do we want to do things like that? Is that really what we're here for so there's this constant i know Karen Sarah and i we we constantly are saying, you know let's ask ourselves why why are we doing this why you know what's the reason behind why and and the more wise we ask, the more we're able to edit our responses and um you know kind of our reasons for for having this fiber shed but it's really important at this point to not reinvent this awful supply chain wheel that has taken control of our our world you know making things in large amounts quickly um, and so what is the fiber shed's role in that and that's something that we're definitely exploring and looking at like very holistically looking at everything that we do
0: Right. I mean, I, I think I get a similar line of questioning sometimes from people when they hear about a fiber shed and think, oh, that's that's great what you're doing in terms of a local level action, but how is that ever going to clothe the world? Or how is that ever going to compete with the large scale system? And it's there's no way it's going to replace the current system. But I think, just like you're articulating, that the I, I would argue the point is not to replace the current system. <laughs> We're in a very flawed system, yeah. and the pace of consumption. So, yeah, you know, people are wearing their clothes um, so so few times and then disposing of them. Um, we don't want to replace that particular model with local fibers because there's there's more value in that. Um, mm-hmm. And But I do think, you know, on that, that sense of how could it scale, um, it's been really inspiring to see how you and your fiber shed have been engaging um, almost like this regional clustering with other fiber sheds in New England and other small groups and different projects that have been going on a little bit, you know, before you guys formalized your fiber shed affiliate and then new initiatives that have sprung up. Can you share more about how you've been connecting with nearby affiliate members and organizers?
1: When the Western Mass Fibershed first started out, we had a conversation like, should we be one fiber shed? You know, should we be the like this kind of Massachusetts Fibershed or this, but what they wanted to do was very different from what we wanted to do. We're not like very different, it was just different. And so we have been in communication with them um, quite a bit, but we're just doing our, our own projects. And then Connecticut has been wonderful and <laughs> being able to connect with them on social media, and they share our posts, and you know they've been so active. I, like that's been fun, just communicating more with them. Um, and even you know, I had a call the other day with the Rust Belt Fibershed that wanted to know more about our carbon farming cohort, and I think it was a great excuse just to have a really great conversation and geek out on Fibershed and have fun, <laughs> fun talking because we came up with all these ideas. But when we, you know, we we did put together. Fiber shed meetup, and there was I'll say 5.5 fiber sheds because one is I think in I am trying to become a fiber shed in New Hampshire. I don't know if she's become an official fiber shed yet, but we all met at this place Karen goes to all the time in Worcester. And it's getting the name sorry, Karen. It's uh, clearly co working, uh, clearly co working, which was clearly the best space for us to be in because (laughs) we all got together and we also. Got um, <coughs> excuse me the Finger Lakes fiber shed to come, and then we skyped in Laura Sanzone from New York Textile Lab too. So we had about six fiber sheds in one room, and we just kind of all went around talking about what our areas are like, what our challenges are, what are some things we need help with, could we collaborate on some type of a project together, could we get more fiber sheds to be part. So it was it got us all, we were all fired up, we were all excited, and we need to actually pick up where that conversation was, we were talking about May, and we're in May, but, yeah, it's, it's just been fun, because you don't have a lot of opportunities to talk about fiber, and farming, and community, and natural dyeing, and all these things that we really like a lot, all of us like, that's, all of us like these things, that's why we're doing this, it's like, kind of our, our passion, but, being able to communicate through social media and through events and you know just kind of go on site visits it has been so much fun and I just see it just continuing to grow too I the more the more we all are able to I mean I know we're all talking later today virtually and um and that's it's just fun there's this camaraderie kind of like what the farmers were talking about that You know, our last Alpaca cohort meetings, like this kind of, ah it's over, but it doesn't have to be over. You can continue the conversations and expand the conversation and and really unite the conversations, too, which is, I think, very valuable, too, because we become really powerful as a group.
0: Yeah, and I agree. There's so many passionate people. I feel like that's really the strength of the affiliate network is in the talent and passion of the people who are part of it, um, who are, you know, taking the idea or the vision of a fiber shed and really um, replicating it and then adapting it in their community um, and just getting to kind of amplify what they're doing and cross-pollinate. So for folks who are listening who might want to get going in their regional fiber system, I'd love to hear any recommendations you have on where to begin, and uh, I think it'd be great to hear from Sarah in particular since you were so instrumental in the roundtable, and then I know you've also done some um, reporting around the funder side and different um, different aspects like that.
3: I, just, I feel so fortunate in the way that our Fibershed and our partnership has evolved, and there is a really um, large dose of I guess I said earlier, serendipity or feeling like that the work just was ready to happen and we all were kind of ready at that time. So I'm not sure if I could um, offer advice on kind of how to replicate that good fortune. But I think, um, I mean, absolutely, for sure, we have learned so much from FiberShed and the affiliate program is an incredible resource for anyone who has this interest. And the resources that you provide, you know, from the opportunity to have a, uh, feature on your website before we might have been ready to have our own website and that the models that other fiber sheds all around the country presented for us and thinking about well what is our geographic region what could our you know our mission look like how do we want to define that
0: and then you know you
3: worked so closely with us on the website template which we're really grateful for and so now that that's an opportunity and a resource for other regions I think a lot of it just comes down to Conversations, relationship building, and partnerships—you um, know, people, as you said, are passionate about this work and coming at it from a lot of different angles. And so, just you know, taking time to identify who else in a given region might also have this interest and really sit down and talk through the why piece. As Amy was saying earlier, like, why do we want to do this work, and what is the what is the world that we want to see coming out of our work? I think that's been critical for us to ask that question. And it's an important filter for how you handle what is a really, like, uh, active and, you know, generative area of work right now. There's just so much interest in so many projects. So between the resources that you provide at Fibershed and, and taking the time for those conversations and real relationship building, I think those are maybe two reflections that I could offer.
0: Amy, would you like to share more about reflections on your side of recommendations and when you're connecting with people, how they might... Begin with a single project or with a, a fiber shed vision. Because I,
1: because fiber shed, all the different um, affiliates, they all have something that they're really interested in. My my advice is, if you're starting a fiber shed, think about what uh, you know some some type of a challenge involving fiber in your region you'd like to take on, and really, really focus in on what it is and kind of let that be your heartbeat for what your fiber shed it for what your fiber shed is and then you of course can build out from there but you know keep asking that why like why do I want to do this what's my reason for it is it for you know so we can have a better planet is it to unite people is it to you know teach some type of craft that's being lost some type of history that's being lost that you want to continue on you know look look at it kind of deeply and and um and ask yourself but like, you know what is just kind of what's that area and what what's your area known for too what are you good at i remember one time talking with um a friend that was on the west coast and she was so upset that um everything was happening on the east coast and i you know, I said, are you kidding me? We might have all this manufacturing and all this, other, you know, people are over here doing their, doing their stuff, but you've got all the farms, you've got all the natural dyeing. You've got these areas that we don't even have over here. I remember on our uh, webinar recently, I looked at Karen when it was mentioned that was a, a, a farm that was 50,000 acres or something. I just was like, are you kidding me? We've got like 50 acres here. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, you know, we all have our specialties, we all kind of, even based on landscape, what, what we can really specialize in, so it's, it's knowing, knowing your area, what it's good at, what it needs, and, and really working to nurture, nurture that in your fiber shed, and let that be that passion that makes you want to keep going, and gathering people, and having conversations, and, and creating connections.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. And on the landscape side, I think, Karen, if you have anything to echo or add on about especially producer outreach and where people might be able to begin um, in networking with the people who are actually producing fiber in their region.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, it's amazing how much is there when you start to look for it. Um, And, you know, you find it looking with local, you know, yarn shops, or your grain store where you know this person has sheep or you you know you go to the county fairs and people are bringing their sheep to it so um being able to find the farmers just takes you know once you're aware they're there it it just they start to come to you i think because they all are looking for this kind of connection with other people in the fiber shed with um, you know people who appreciate fiber you know and i guess the other benefit we have in our region um, is to agricultural high schools where there are um, students, high school students, working with fiber animals. So that's been um, some, you know, there's been interest through that as well.
0: Which I know is a, a theme as well of incorporating intergenerational connections in a fiber shed to be able to keep these traditions going and these these assets and skills. Well, thank you all so much for joining me today and for sharing more about your work in the Southeastern New England Fibershed.
2: Love is back in a trail. Turn one way and it goes the other Love.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Soil to Soil, a podcast by Fibershed, which is a nonprofit organization based in Northern California. We invite you to learn more about our work and the concepts we discussed by visiting fibershed.org. There, you can join our newsletter to hear the latest updates, both from Northern California and from our Fibershed affiliate members. And you can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for our account, Fibershed. And also, many of the Fibershed affiliate members are active on those platforms. So go ahead and give them a follow and see what they're up to. And whether you're a part of a Fibershed affiliate or you're just exploring some of these ideas on your own, If you go ahead and use hashtag Fibershed on your post, we love to see what you're up to, and that adds to a pool. There's over 8,000 posts right now where people are talking about their fiber shed, maybe their natural dyes, or your local textile resources, and what you're exploring, or visiting a fiber farm or a mill. Maybe you're making a piece of clothing or mending. Go ahead and let us know what you're up to and what you're reflecting on. You can find more about the projects you heard about today on senefibershed.org, and their blog is such a wonderful resource with the interviews um, they've been sharing with the alpaca farmers in their carbon farming cohort, as well as their regional mills. You can also follow along with their Instagram account, which is at S-E New England Fibershed and on Facebook at Southeastern New England Fibershed. As I mentioned in this episode, and as Sarah and Karen and Amy talked about, the Fibershed Affiliate Program is a grassroots global network of communities organizing in their home communities and looking at their own regional fiber systems. We offer resources as well as cross-pollination through webinars and digital gatherings. So if you'd like to learn more about joining the program or connecting to an existing Fibershed Affiliate, Please check that out online at fibershed.com/programs/affiliate-program, and it means so much that you're listening. So if you are enjoying this show, or you have some feedback or comments you'd like to share, please go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes, or share on social media and let us know what's resonating with you. You can also email us your feedback directly to podcast@fibershed.com. This show is produced by Fibershed with support from Whetstone Media and music by Aaron Harris, who's a member of the Northern California Fibershed.
3: Love
2: you.